Welcome to the preaching podcast from the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. In 1 Timothy 3.15, it says that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Therefore, we believe it is our duty to hold fast and to hold forth the truth, which is the Word of God. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you will be encouraged by what you hear today. Verse 1 of Galatians 5. Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Ye are fallen from grace, for we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith with which worketh by love. Ye did run well, who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you a little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. Thank you. you. may be seated. Again, I see this verse as a turning point in Paul's challenge to the Galatians. He has been for four plus chapters all the way in here uh, to, to chapter 5 expo exposing what is wrong with the doctrine that had crept into this church. He has been exposing the error of going back to the law and now it's almost like he's coming to his final argument. He's going to make his final case this is why you need to reject what you're being taught. Uh, you're being taught salvation is, being, is to be kept by the works of the law. It's wrong. It's not of God. And it's like verse 10 is the conclusion of this section where he is challenging them to repent of some false thinking that had come from false doctrine. Then he says, I have confidence in, in, uh, in you. Uh, let me read the verse again. I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded. It's almost like he said, I've made my case by the direction of the Spirit of God and I have confidence that you will put this thinking away and follow this line of thinking no more. And it's a clear-cut call for them to make a decision to be done with the false doctrine they had been entertaining. Uh, I'll use this again. I'm just going to use this as an illustration, but uh, you hear the warnings and the admonition from this pulpit as well as many others about the dangers of Calvinism. Yet there are times that in, in the face of those warnings, there are, there are those that would say, well, you know, there have been some good guys that were Calvinists. How many of you ever think that way? Well, that may be so. Charles Spurgeon was a decent guy. But the Calvinism he preached was still error. <laughs> and my point is this. There needs to come a point where the Christian says, I refuse to become a Calvinist. And we trust that the Holy Spirit of God, because of the Bible, will confirm that the preaching against that doctrine is not mere preference, but is actually directed by the Holy Spirit of God to expose an error, and we say, I will be none otherwise minded. Well, you know what? Here's, there's so many lessons from this statement, but when we preach the Word of God, we can have confidence that God will honor that in the hearts of people, that God will come behind and confirm that is not the word of a man, that's the word of God. And so, having said all of that, that's verse 10 is what we dealt with last week and kind of scratched the surface on this matter. But as I've studied it this week, looked at it, I still don't feel like I'm fully prepared to give you this thought tonight, but I believe this is what we need to do. And so then, we're going to look at a number of verses. I'm going to read you a, a number of verses that deal with this, this matter of one man having confidence in another man as it relates to the work of God in the life of that person or people. So it's in, in order of Scripture, I'm going to read you a number of verses. 2 Corinthians 1, 14 and 15. And we can't put them all in their context. I just want to read you the verses where this kind of communication of confidence in a church or the members of that church are communicated. 2 Corinthians 1, 14 and 15. It says, As also you have acknowledged us in part that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, so the confidence that came from their, re their rejoicing and their affirmation that they had given. And in this confidence, I was minded 
to come unto you before that ye might have a second benefit. 2 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4, And I wrote the same unto you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to, have, to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears that ye should be, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. So twice he's expressed confidence in the Corinthians. Here's a third one. We'll have a fourth one and then a fifth one. How many of you would be writing the Corinthians saying, I have confidence in you? This, I'm telling you, this, this is something that blows my mind. <laughs> this is how you know it's not based upon fleshly things. This is a spiritual confidence, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort, yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus because his spirit was refreshed by you all, for if I have boasted anything to him of you, I am not ashamed. But as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting which I made before Titus is found a truth, and his inward affection is more abundant toward you, whilst he remembereth the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling ye received him. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all Things. Now, he didn't write this way in 1 Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians, and that is key. Okay, that is going to be key. Uh, then we go on to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 22. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. Do you think Paul's trying to make a point to the Corinthians? Now, here we go again. Chapter 9, verse 4. Lest happily if they of Macedonia come with me, and I find you unprepared, we, in parentheses, that we say not ye, should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. He said, I've been doing some confident boasting about you. Don't put me to shame here, right? Uh, and so we move on to Galatians 5.10, which we've already read. I've confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. Philippians 1.6, Paul speaks in general of his confidence in the Lord concerning believers, specifically the, the Philippians, but us as well, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's going to be a fundamental verse to all of these. Philippians 3.3, 3, he writes this, For we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit, in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. This is a defining verse. As he's expressing confidence, he's not expressing confidence in people's natural tendencies, but in the spiritual working that God is doing. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 4. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you. So the confidence here is expressed to be in the Lord, but as it relates to, that's the way we would phrase this, we have confidence in the Lord touching you that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. 2 Thessalonians 3, 4. Philemon 1.21, having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. Let me just say this tonight. The, this kind of confidence is, is built upon faithfulness. Some of the verses expressed here have nothing to do with the faithfulness of the people being written to, but the faithfulness of the Lord that dwelt in them. However, so I believe there are varying, as we read these verses, there are varying degrees or different aspects of confidence. You'll find, for instance, with the Corinthians, there was a confidence that was developed or built by the Corinthians. The, the Bible talks about, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, wherefore it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And so some confidence here is expressed, and Paul, by the direction, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is very careful how he expresses that confidence. So, for instance, to the Galatians, we have confidence in you in the Lord. <laughs> Meaning, I can't say this is based on what you're doing. I can't say it's based on what you've been letting go on, but I can say I have confidence in you in the Lord because I know you're in Christ and I know he's in you, then I have confidence about what he's going to do. I have confidence in, in the Lord touching you, he said to the Thessalonians. And so I want to give three things tonight about this kind of confidence. Is it possible for a person to have confidence in another person? It is. It is. How many of us understand there's a difference in acknowledging someone as a family member and having trust in them as a family member? 
And what Paul is saying is, I have a level of trust in you to respond the way you should to the truth. And it's going to, be, it's going to relate to a number of different things. So tonight, we want to see the basis of this confidence that is expressed in all of these books, in all these epistles, the building up of that confidence, and then the burden of that confidence. So let's begin with the basis of this confidence. It all comes back to being confident in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way a person can be faithful is by faith. That's just the faithful is the, the fruit of having faith. When we live by faith, it develops in us a consistency and a constancy of life that makes us faithful. Uh, the only way to be a faithful person is to live by faith. I believe all, the, all this would say to some degree we enjoy when someone entrusts us with a responsibility. Okay? So let me just speak to you from my heart from the, from the church perspective. One of my jobs in pastoring the church is to define and determine what things are we are responsible to do and who will fulfill those responsibilities. We're a small church, but everybody has some responsibility. I mean, there's, everybody here is busy serving the Lord in some capacity. Some responsibilities require greater confidence. We're not going to let somebody join last week, become a Sunday school teacher, uh, or, uh, um, you know, uh, take over the finances. Or, but to, in my mind, the number one most important thing we do is teach and preach the Word of God. That's, that's when you look at the Bible, that is the highest requirement. The bishop must be apt to teach, and he's got the most requirements. Okay, then after that, we're handling music, and that's ministering uh, doctrine through song. That's an important requirement. Handling the church's resources. You know what's more important than the, the church's money? The church's name, because it's the Lord's name. And so it's not so much how important finances are, it's that we provide things honest in the sight of all men, right? So we want to have confidence in people that they're going to do the right thing. And so confidence is the byproduct of faithfulness. Now, I believe with someone like the Galatians or the Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, there wasn't really a lot of faithfulness from the believer, but Paul knew Christ was faithful, and he had a level of confidence based on that. So we start with the basis of this confidence are the, is the promises of God's Word. At some point in time, the Apostle Paul had come and preached to the Corinthians. He had preached to the Galatians. He had preached to the Thessalonians, and they had confessed Jesus Christ as their Savior. Amen? They had a, a professed subjection to the gospel of Christ. Now, here's what happens. When someone makes a profession of faith, what can happen on our part, and I've been guilty of this, God's had to deal with me about this, especially as a response to some who mishandle the gospel and mishandle professions of faith, there are those who go find somebody on the street, and I'm not making fun because I, I want to see people put zeal and endeavor into winning souls. But you find somebody, you begin to talk to them, Perhaps they say, you know, I'm not really interested in talking about this. And you talk them into listening to you for 10 minutes. In the back of their mind, they're thinking, whatever I need to do to get this guy to go away, I'll do it. And you let them know, if you will pray this prayer, you can go to heaven when you die. And they say, if it'll make you go away, I'll pray whatever you want me to pray. You with me? High pressure sales, not soul winning. And what, what, what I've watched in my life, I've been around this all my life, is Many times you follow up on that person that made the profession. I've personally done this on numerous cases. I remember the first time it happened, I was in Ohio. Somebody had supposedly made a profession of faith. We went to try to talk to this guy. He didn't, he didn't know what it meant to be saved more than anything else. But he had prayed because somebody really put the pressure on him. Now, I believe in bold soul winning and persuading men. I don't believe in getting men to pray something they don't believe in their heart. Amen? That's, that's not wise. They're not being wise. So what can happen is we have a knee-jerk reaction to that. So that's not soul winning. So I'm not going to do anything like that. I'm not going to approach people. I'm not going to talk to people. I'm not going to be zealous. I'm not going to be bold. We're just not going to do that. And when somebody does make a profession of faith, you sit there and think they probably didn't get saved. How many of you ever seen somebody make a profession of faith and flounder spiritually? I mean, they don't join a church. They don't get baptized. How many of you have seen it more than once? So if we're not careful... We began to live in doubt that God actually saves people that call on him to save them. God has to bring me full circle and say, now look here. Do you know that person's heart? I don't, actually. Here's what else. If they sincerely put their trust in Christ, what did God do? He saved them. Can we be confident in that? Absolutely. 
if I am signaling to the new convert, I don't know if you're saved or not. Well, I'm putting that back on them. Instead of saying, you trusted Christ, he saved you. Now, I understand there'll be tares among the wheat. How many of you know what one commandment we were given about tares among wheat? Anybody know? Leave them alone. Don't rip them up. Don't go around trying to prove all the people that are pretending to be saved. You just preach the word and it'll all come out in the wash. You with me? As Paul preached, there were people that responded in faith. He could have spent all of his ministry saying, I don't know if you're really saved or not. You know what he said? I'm confident in the Lord concerning you, touching you. Uh, he had, you know why he could do that? Because he knows God doesn't lie. He knows that God does not lie, and he knows that if someone called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they got saved. That's what God does. And so then the basis of this confidence was Paul's confidence in the word of God. The promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. And when someone comes to personal faith in Jesus Christ, whether they're four or whether they're 40, God saves them. Amen? They need to be given assurance of their salvation by us being confident that the Lord has done what he promised to do. And I understand we don't want to lead people down. But you know what? God does what he promises to do. And so Paul writes to these people confident that the Lord had saved them. He, he, he challenges the Galatians. He said, I, I'm fearful of you. I'm fearful that you're going to get off track and our labor is in vain. But he doubles right back and says, I'm confident in you. Uh, I'm confident in you in the Lord. You know what he's saying? I'm confident you're in the Lord. At some point in time, you believe the promises of God. You professed your faith in the promises of God. You acted in a manner that was consistent with that. And I, Paul more than once talks about knowing, brethren, your election of God. Have you ever read that where Paul saying, knowing therefore, he says that to the Thessalonians, your election of God, meaning it is evident that God has saved you. And so that's where he's writing from. He is not living all of his life saying, well, we never really know who our brethren are. I mean, we, look, I know I'm saved, but I don't know if you're saved. You know that's not biblical. You realize that's not biblical. Paul said we are, to the Galatians, we are confident in you in the Lord, meaning I know your brethren. <laughs> Therefore, his assurance that the promises of God are true, that whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here are some people that called on the name of the Lord. He's willing to count them as brethren even though they're not doing well, even though they're not responding correctly to doctrine, even though they had not shored up their defenses against false doctrine, he says, but I know you're in the Lord and I'm gonna, I'm gonna address you as such. And so that kind of persuasion, by the way, if you can't be sure someone else is saved, how do you love the brethren? And I understand we're not the Holy Spirit of God and you really can't see deep into somebody's heart, but here's what I understand it to mean. Charity beareth all things, Believe in all things. That doesn't mean you're gullible. It doesn't mean you believe lies. What it does mean is you are willing to act upon the promises of God and assume that God's keeping his word. He's saving souls. You can live your life in fear. What if these people aren't really getting saved? What if they're not sincere? You hear those two words coming through your mind, what if? Your red flags and mine should go off. You know what, what if is signaling? Doubt. And I'm not talking about we just need to believe in people. No, 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 no but we do believe in God relating to people. We believe that God blesses the preaching of the gospel. We you know what? I went in the jail and preached today, and I preached to men whose lives are, are obviously not where they want them to be. Their lives are a mess. These are men who are, have heard the word of God, and I go in there filled with doubt and thinking, I'm going to preach, and they probably don't want to hear, and they may be, you know what I believe? God said go preach, and that the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I believe that God will use what was done today. I believe as the John and Romans went out today, it's seed. And we must expect that God will bless his work. He said, he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And I see this attitude of heart that Paul had such confidence in the word of God and the work of God that he could say, now I'm confident in you because I know who's working in you. And so he was confident in the promises of God's word. He was confident, therefore, in the principles of God's word. And he was confident because of the persuasion of God's people. God, through the preaching of Paul, had persuaded people that what they were hearing was truth and they'd believed it and professed subjection to the gospel. Again, we said, where does this come from? How do we know that's where Paul's confidence came from? Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, 
that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You know what that tells me? Paul knew that God had begun a good work in the Philippians. Paul knew that God was working in the Philippians and that God would continue to work in the Philippians. So we know that this confidence expressed, he says in Philippians 3, 3, we read this earlier, had nothing to do with being confident in man, in man's natural position, man's natural disposition. He said, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul wasn't writing to the Galatians and saying, Oh, I know the good stock you Galatian folk come from. I have confidence in you. You come from good, you got a good seed line. You, you come from a good part of the world where people follow through on what they say. No, no, we don't have confidence in the flesh. His confidence was based on the promises and principles of God's word and the professed subjection of people to that. Paul was confident that he which had begun a good work in them would perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I believe, by the way, and this, is, this all really got touched on last week. This relates to how we parent our children. This relates to how I pastor a church. This relates to how you teach a Sunday school class. This relates to how you disciple someone you've led to faith in Christ. When you have done that, you've got to be confident that God is, we are laborers together with God. We are working with him. He is working with us and we can have confidence in what people are going to do going forward and how God's going to deal with them because God keeps his word and operates according to his own principles in the lives of people. If this book is not God's word, then we're just wasting a lot of time, effort, and energy. But because it is God's word, we can expect for God to teach us from it and we can expect for God to do a miraculous work with people who hear it. I love the text in Acts 16 where Paul goes, he does his part. Paul does his part. He preaches the gospel to Lydia and her house. But it's through the preaching of the gospel that God did his part. The Bible says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart. Now, how did he do that? Calvinists would say, see, God, had, God, had, God opened her heart. But how did God do it? Through the preaching of the word of God. May I say this? We go, how, how many of us, how many, guys, how many souls do we see saved today knocking doors? We don't know, do we? We didn't see it. How many souls do you think have been saved from the literature, the Bible literature we've distributed? I don't know, but I know we're going to have souls in heaven. I do. You know, we need this now and again as we go out, do we not? It can become a drudgery. But we've got to have confidence that God is working with people. God's going to go behind and honor his work. I have sown, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And so we have to have confidence in people that really is confidence in God. The basis of our confidence relating to people is so well stated in the verse where the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 4, and we have confidence in the Lord touching you. We have confidence in the Lord touching you. That's the basis of his confidence. Now, the building of that confidence. So as they trust God's word... That's where the profession of faith comes from. As they trust God's word, faith produces works. Those works produce confidence. Amen? It builds confidence. So let's see this, the building of that confidence. Paul had a basic confidence in the people he was dealing with that God was going to work in them and that he was going to work in them both to will and to do of his good pleasure and he would do that until the Lord Jesus came. So there was a basic confidence in every soul he led to Christ that God was going to work and confirm that work in hearts and follow behind. But then there was a building of that confidence. If we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, I'm going to read these verses again. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, as, ye also, as also ye have acknowledged us in part, so this has not so much to do with their acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but acknowledging that Paul and his companions were servants of the Lord. He said, as also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I was minded to come unto you before that ye might have a second benefit. There was some point in time uh, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And by the way, all through 2 Corinthians, Paul is having to defend his ministry to the Corinthians. Apparently, he had come under accusation that perhaps he was not 
uh, all that, uh, that, that he was billed up to be, that maybe he was uh, not a legitimate preacher. And so he's having, at some point he says, do I need to write epistles of commendation again? Now Paul had led these people to Christ. I've watched this happen in my life. I've watched people be led to Christ by one person and those people that led them to Christ have never changed their doctrine. They've never changed their stance. They've never changed their position. But later, the people they led to Christ got so spiritually adept and so wise that they needed to be done with the people that led them to Christ. We have progressed. Something like this happened with the Corinthians. They were glorying in their knowledge. It's something like this. Sometimes people become spiritual teenagers. No offense, teenagers, but they are growing in knowledge so fast they feel superior to everyone. And so the very people that brought them to faith in Christ can no longer instruct them. But at some point in time, the Corinthians had at least in part acknowledged, you know what, on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to have to say, boy, we sure are grateful for how the Lord used the Apostle Paul. He is a legitimate tool of God in our life. And he said, when I heard that you were willing to acknowledge us, as servants the Lord had used in that we are your rejoicing just like you're our rejoicing. Now, let me put it this way. There are people that years ago got saved because some narrow-minded, hard-nosed, stiff-necked, mean-spirited, independent fundamental Baptist church was mean-spirited enough to knock on the door and give them the gospel. But along the lines, as they were taught to serve the Lord and grow, they got offended. They wouldn't darken the door of an independent Baptist church today if you paid them $10,000. I'm telling you, they're that offended. And if you said, are those people, are you going to rejoice that you knew those people at the judgment seat someday? <laughs> Don't even know if they'll be there, a bunch of legalists. That's kind of what's going on here. But at some point in time, the Corinthians had said, yes, we, we, we acknowledge that just like at the, at the day of the Lord, Paul's going to rejoice because we're there because we're his fruit. We're going to rejoice because he's there because we're his fruit. You with me? And Paul said, that gave me some confidence that maybe I'll be welcome back to your church again to minister to you. It gave me some confidence that maybe, let's read it again. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 1, 14 and 15. As ye also, as also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, the confidence that came that you acknowledged us in part, it put in me a confidence, hey, they actually are willing to receive some ministry from us. I was minded to come unto you before that ye might have a second benefit. They had benefited from him once before, had they not? But there was a point where he wasn't sure if he was welcome. There are churches, because of what is preached and the way it's preached, I can promise you, I would never be invited. And they may, they're Baptist churches. Now, I hope that's not on my part. But how sad would that be if it ever became Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church? I've seen churches that did well under Bible preaching, but progressed so much that the pastor that led them and blessed them and God used to bless them later was not even allowed to be invited back to speak. That, and, and, and I'm thinking of two accounts where this is the case, where pastors got uninvited to a homecoming of sorts, either a pastor or assistant pastor. In all the years they had been preaching, the doctrine of those preachers had not changed. But guess what had changed? the churches they'd previously pastored. To the point it was, they're no longer welcome here. They won't like what we've become. If they show up, they're just going to rebuke us. And so we don't want them coming. There's nothing new under the sun. If you read all of 2 Corinthians, you'll see that's the tone that Paul is working from. But what he says is this. The Corinthians had began to reestablish some confidence by affirming in part, acknowledging in part, yes, Paul is our rejoicing. We rejoice in knowing him just like he rejoices in knowing us. May I say this? If you ever lead my Lord, you ever invest in their life and see any spiritual fruit, they may disown you someday, but you'll still rejoice that you had the opportunity to invest in their life. It is time well invested for the service of the Lord. And so the building of this confidence that he speaks of throughout 2 Corinthians especially, it was this is attributed to how the Corinthians were responding to the work of God in their lives. How many of you know almost the entirety of 1 Corinthians was a sharp rebuke? It was from the word go. 
He rebuked them over carnality. He rebuked them over schism and divisions in the churches. He rebuked them over fornication in the churches. He, in the church, he rebuked them over lawsuits between one another. He rebuked them over immorality in the church. He rebuked them over the abuse of the Lord's Supper. He rebuked them over disorder. He rebuked them over the abuse of the gift of tongues. He rebuked them over a lot of things. And it was very specific and very sharp. So it may, may help us understand why they weren't wanting to hear from Paul. <laughs> but at some point, he said, I got word that you are open, and, and they began to build a confidence. You say, how does this apply to us? You don't know how it might affect a person ministering to you for you to say, you know what? We are grateful and rejoice. May I say this? A pastor rejoices at the privilege to pastor people. But if a pastor can hear that you rejoice that he's your pastor, and I'm not digging for anything. Many of you, you, this isn't specific. This is just a general principle. It helps him know, oh, they're open to my ministry to them. They are open to hear what God has for them. I am, that is a welcoming sign. I have permission to serve you, right? And you said, you need permission to serve? Well, yeah, sort of. Uh, to be honest. And so the Apostle Paul, there was a building of confidence by an open profession. They were willing to openly identify with the Apostle Paul as being a source of fruitfulness in their life, and that restored some confidence he had in them. Number two, the building of that confidence was through practical conduct, just through practical conduct. In Galatians 4.15, I believe one of the reasons Paul had confidence in the position of the Galatians in Christ is he says this, while this wasn't their current practice in past when he'd preached them, he says this in verse 12. He calls them brethren. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. You have not injured me at all. You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first in my temptation, which was in my flesh, you despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Now, let's just pause for a minute. I understand we do not need to build our lives on what people think of us. But how many of you know this? When someone closes their heart to the preaching of the gospel, the preacher is done. If I go to somebody's door and they make it abundantly clear, I don't want to hear what you have to say. I do this deep thing. Okay. And we go away. <laughs> because that's their decision. Right? Right? Here's the Apostle Paul. He said, when I came to you, he said, you received me, the messenger of God, as an angel of God. You know what that gave him? Confidence. Oh, not confidence in himself, but confidence in them that you want the word of God. So their actions signified their attitude toward the word of God. He says in verse 14, and my, verse 13, you know how through infirmity of flesh I preached the gospel unto you at first. My temptation which was in my flesh you despised not nor rejected but receive me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? You say, well, that's kind of the opposite there. But he's looking back and saying there was a time when I came to you with the word of God, including with an infirmity in my flesh, you gladly received me as the messenger of God. Their response to the word of God gave him confidence in their faith in the word of God. Their works communicated their faith. And I'll say this again. If, let's just get very practical tonight. Someone says, you know what? I sometimes feel like I'm not trusted. I sometimes feel like pastor doesn't trust me with this or that. We can communicate our belief in the word of God by how we respond to the preacher of God's word. Now, this gets very personal, but it's, it's very practical. Do you realize Paul was saying, I could, I could discern your attitude toward God's word by your attitude toward the messenger of God's word. And this, he understood, though. You know, I believe this. As you go to chapter 5, he could look back. And what, he's, what, he's, what he's appealing to is I know there was a point in time you had no problem with the word of God by the way you responded to it. I have confidence that you made a genuine profession of faith because when I came preaching, I had infirmity in my flesh. You received me like an angel of God. The word of God was no problem then. He's going back and I can't help but think in his own mind, he's thinking, did these people even mean what they said? And he looks back and says, no. 
their actions affirm their profession. That we can build confidence by what we do. What we do demonstrates our confidence in the Word of God. And Paul could appeal to the Galatians saying, I saw your response to the Word of God. I saw how you treated me and that signified and that tells that you had confidence in the Word of God, faith in the Word of God. And so that tells me, your actions tell me of your position as it relates to the Word of God. So the building of confidence is through profession that's coupled with practice. Again, we're talking about uh, what men see. James says, show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith by my works. There had been a point in time where the Galatians had demonstrated their faith in God's word before Paul. And you see that with the Corinthians. The next point is very similar. It's almost identical. But the building of this profession is through, uh, of, this, of the confidence that Paul had in the Corinthians was through the, the profession. The building of that confidence in the Galatians was through their practice. And you would say the same with the Corinthians. But then there was also a proving do you realize Paul regularly sent fellow ministers to check on the churches? Do you realize Paul sent Timothy to check on the Thessalonians? We read that this morning in Sunday school. He said, I feared lest the tempter tempted you in some way and you had not been faithful. And so he sent Timothy. He said, go check on them. See how they're doing. It's very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you want to turn back over there or turn there, that the apostle Paul at some time became concerned that the force of his first epistle had somehow broken his relationship with the Corinthians and had damaged their relationship with the Lord. At least that seems to be the concern communicated. And he sends Titus to check on the Corinthians. I believe there was a concern that the Corinthians were going to cut Paul off and not allow him to continue to serve them and see them grow in the Lord. They were going to say, we're done and so Paul sent Titus to check on them, to check up on them. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you're there, uh, the Bible says in verse, let's go back just a little bit. He's talking about um, how they responded to the epistle he wrote here in chapter 7. In verse 8, he said, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us and nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have, what's the next word? Approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong. I wasn't taking his side, nor for his cause that suffered the wrong. Wasn't taking his side, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort, yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I am not ashamed. He said, if I said the Corinthians will do right, Titus, they'll, they'll do the right thing. They'll do the right thing. I'm not ashamed, but as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting which I made before Titus is found a truth. And his inward affection is more abundant toward you whilst he remembereth, so Titus had checked on them, whilst he remembereth the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling ye received him, I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. You read this in context of what Paul's saying. And he said, I wrote to you about a problem in the church. I wasn't taking this man's side or this man's side. And I wrote, and I know it made you sorry. I'm not glad you were sorry, but I'm glad you were sorrowed to repentance. And I sent Titus to check back up on you. And when he came, you knew he was my representative, and you received him gladly. And he said, what I did is I sent to test you to see if you were loyal to the truth of God's word and you passed with flying colors. This is called building confidence. Now I say this, when a Bible truth is preached, it's a test of professing believers. When a Bible truth is preached, this is what God says. This is how, how many of us know that Paul was writing to them about the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ? No, he was talking about practical problems inside the church. And he said, now I have confidence in you because when you are told that you were wrong, 
you repented. And when Titus, who is connected to me, the one who told you you need to repent, was sent, you didn't give him the cold shoulder. You received him with fear and trembling. Meaning you have approved yourself. You have shown we are on the side of truth. May I just say this? When a professing Christian is given the truth and they give a cold shoulder to the giver of truth, that's called failing. But we say, you know what? I feel bad. I feel ashamed. But I'm going to submit to the truth because I believe in the one who gave it. I believe in Jesus Christ. You build confidence. You realize the Corinthians did not build confidence by never having error. They built confidence by responding to truth correctly when they were in error. Amen? This is a key point. Paul says to the Corinthians again and again, he said, I boasted, I told Titus, they'll do the right thing. They'll do the right thing. I don't know if you've ever been in this position where someone you had influenced was interacting with someone else and the other person's like, eh, I don't know about this guy. I don't know about this guy. And you say, you know what? I'm going to vouch for him. I'm going to put my neck on the line. He won't disappoint you. He'll do what he ought to do. In the back of your mind, you think, oh, I sure hope so. Oh, I sure hope so. You know what Paul says? I boasted of you to Titus that you love the truth enough. I remembered when you received the gospel. I remember when you got saved. I remember how you responded. And I told him you'd do right and you've not disappointed me. Well, I don't know about you. That'll, that'll give you a shot in the arm spiritually. Paul's saying to the, the very people, the very people in 1 Corinthians 5, he said, when you gather, my spirit is with you to turn that man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Don't you think we don't know what's going on? God's not going to deal with this. I mean, 1 Corinthians 5 was sharp rebuke. Dare you, any of you go to law one with another. 1 Corinthians 6, sharp rebuke. But in 2 Corinthians 7, the Bible says, yea, what vehement desire. They responded with a fervent zeal to the correction of God's word. And you know what the fruit of that was? The base confidence turned into all confidence. You notice what Paul said? He had a basic confidence in, in any believer who professed faith in Christ that God was working in them. But in verse 16, he said, I rejoice therefore that I have confidence in you in all things. That's to the Corinthian church. Because when they were rebuked, instead of bristling, they submitted to God's word. So we have an opportunity to build confidence. So the basis of confidence is the promises of God's word, the principles of God's word because of the character of God. But then the building of that is an open, verbal profession of, you know what, we're willing to identify with those who love the truth, practice that matches that. And when we're proven and put to the test to see how are we going to respond, we follow through with responding correctly. You see, Paul was observing. I wrote them an epistle telling them they were wrong. What are they going to do? And they did the right thing. When they did the right thing, Paul said, I have confidence in you. I have, I, I think of someone tonight in my life, and I feel like, if you ask me, do you have confidence in that person as a, as a Christian? I'd say, absolutely. I'd say, boy, they must, they must have never given any grief. They must have never had any trouble. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I can think of a handful of people right now. I'm thinking, I, I can give you three names right now. This one, this one, this one. Absolute confidence. Boy, they must be just perfect Christians. No, I'll tell, tell you what they do. When given the word of God, they always submit to God's word. And by and by, you say, you know what? That person is someone I have confidence in in all things. Because when given the truth, they respond correctly to the truth. That's exactly what took place here in 2 Corinthians 7. They built the Corinthians by their response. When they responded to the promises and principles of God's word the same way Paul did, you know what he did? Gave them unity and gave confidence in them. And then their walk with the Lord. And so the basis of confidence, the promises and principles of God's word, the persuasion of God's people, the building of that, an open profession, an unashamed practice, and then when proven, passing the test by obedience. Now, the burden of this confidence. What does it do to you when someone says, I trust you to do what's right? Let me put it this way. You know what, if I preach to you and I'm already sure you're not going to do it right, that'll encourage you, won't it? I'm going to preach to you tonight. No one ever obeys God anyway. You won't either. So I'm just going to rip your head off. Oh, that'll encourage you. You know what? Let's go out and obey the Lord. No. If, if as a parent, you feel like I am 100% responsible for all the decisions my children make, 
And if they don't do right, that is 100% on me. You're going to communicate that to them. I have no confidence in you. It's all on me. They'll say, okay. So if my life is a mess, I can blame it on you. <laughs> you know, at some point in time, the child that's professed faith in Christ needs to be told, I'm expecting you to do what's right because God lives in you. And I know he's working in you, so you need to listen to him. And I trust you're going to do what's right because you're a Christian and Christians do what's right. Amen? As a church tonight, and I'll be honest with you, something the Lord has to help and is having to help me with. But the fact of the matter is, as Paul communicated, I have confidence in you. You know where that puts the burden back? Back where it belongs, on them, their walk of faith. That I'm expecting you, Galatians, to re I've given you an expose on what's wrong with the doctrine that's crept in your church, and I'm expecting you to give it no more place in your mind. Because I know God is in you, and what I'm telling you is from Him, and I know you believe on Him and trust Him. So I'm expecting you, I have confidence that you will be none otherwise minded. There's a number of categories where the burden was put back upon the people of God by an expressed confidence. Paul said, I am sure that you're in Christ. And therefore, I'm sure he is in you. And I'm sure that he's working in you. And so then, there's a number of things he expressed confidence in them that put a burden back on them to be faithful in. Letter A, reception of fellow servants. That's what 2 Corinthians 1 was all about. Is He said, based upon your response to me, even after rebuke, you, you acknowledged in part that you are our, we are your rejoicing. I mean, you rejoice in us. That confidence gave me the idea that I'm welcome to return. I would love to come and give you a second blessing. I'd love to come back and minister to you again on a second occasion. And so there was a burden. Once the Corinthians heard, oh, our open identification with the Apostle Paul and acknowledgement that we rejoice in him opened the door for him to come back and put a burden to receive him, receive him back. And so uh, there was a burden put on them for the reception of the servants of God. May I say this, as long as a servant of God is serving God's word faithfully, let me just give some forward caution to Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church. A church can develop a bad attitude towards certain preachers. We don't like that kind of preaching. The only kind of preaching we don't like is that which is not consistent with God's word. Amen? What can happen is a preacher can be a little bit too much used of God to put his thumb on the pulse of our church, speak to us what we need to hear, and all of a sudden we say, we really don't want him back anymore. And I'm not aware of anybody that we have that attitude about. So don't misunderstand me. It's not a rebuke. This is a forward warning. I've watched this happen. I've watched preachers come in and a church say, we really hope the pastor doesn't schedule him again. It has nothing to do with the man's not preaching the truth. It has to do with he gets a little too close to home. You know what? We don't need to do that. When that preacher says, you know what, I've got a meeting scheduled and can preach it to you, and I'm confident you are preparing through prayer. I have heard that the last time I came, you rejoiced that God used us to serve you. The church is then burdened to say, you know what, we need to make sure we respond properly to this preacher because it's the right thing to do. So at first and second, how I many you know what happened in 3 John? A guy named Diotrephes got into the church, and he took complete control over who was allowed to come through and who that church is going to welcome in because he had to have the preeminence. And if anybody made Diotrephes look bad, that person wasn't welcome. This is, a, this is something very practical in New Testament churches. And Paul says, now, you rejoiced openly in identifying with me as a... I'm going to tell you something. If Paul was preaching today, it would cost you to identify with him. Say, have you had that guy come in and preach? Yes. Oh, my. You're one of those. I mean, people love slapping labels on churches and movements and all kinds of things to minimize the truth. And so this church, the Corinthians, had, yes, they had identified, and that put the burden on them to have a right reception of fellow servants, Number letter B. He, there was a burden through confidence, through the confidence, to rejoice in being involved in God's service. He says in 2 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4, And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from of whom I ought to rejoice, from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, that you uh, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. He's saying to them, I am confident that what makes me rejoice is going to make you rejoice and that your rejoicing is what makes me rejoice. You know, the spiritual well-being of other Christians is what ought to make us rejoice. Is it not? Seeing you flourish in the Lord ought to give me joy. Then it ought to give you joy to see other Christians flourish in the Lord. And a true Christian, hey, a true Christian will rejoice when another Christian is flourishing. If not, it's envy. 
And so Paul is saying, and by the way, there have been plenty of envy in the church of Corinth. That's why there's so much division and schism and strife. And he says, you know what? I heard that you are rejoicing, and what I rejoice, that we have the same joy. What brings me joy brings you joy, and what brings you joy brings me joy. You know, that is, a, that, is a, that is something that we ought to be burdened with, and I am rejoicing over the right things. And so there was a burden through confidence to receive the servants of God that were serving the Lord. There was a burden. Uh, let, me, let me try to back up and just keep this practical. Uh, a church can get burdened down with having too many missionaries through. But if a missionary is a true servant of God, I can say to a missionary, I am confident our church will be glad to have you. And I do say that. You know what that does to the church? We need to maintain a right attitude toward our missionaries that come through. Uh, I can say to a growing Christian, a baby Christian, if you come to church, nothing will make this church happier than to see you get consistent in your Christian life. By the way, I can say that to newborn Christians. If you'll get in church, the members of this church are going to rejoice at your spiritual progress. Now, that hadn't been the way it was in the Corinthian church, but Paul could say to them, that's what makes me rejoice, and that's what makes you rejoice. And so he put the burden on them of rejoicing over the right, over spiritual progress, over the service of the Lord, that there was a mutual rejoicing over one another in their service for the Lord. And number, letter C. He burdened them through expression of confidence with receiving the servants of the Lord, rejoicing in the things of God, spiritual things in the servants of the Lord, and service of the Lord, let her see, in rendering sacrificially. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is all about monetary giving. That's the, these chapters are all about. It's where we get the, the, the concept of grace giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 20. Uh, let me back up. It's in verse 21, or verse 19, rather. And not that only, but who also, uh, I was talking about someone that they've chosen to carry the offering of the church. So I'm just going to start reading verse 19. But who also was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind, avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance, which is administered by us, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So he's talking about carrying a, a gift a financial blessing to the churches of Judea. Verse 22, And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you, whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper, so on and so forth. He's saying, We have found a brother who is very diligent in all things, but when he heard my confidence in you that you're going to give a gift, he was even more diligent. He is willing to come along and help provide this. You know what Paul's saying? I have confidence. You said over a year ago you were going to give, and I have boasted that if you said it, you'll do it. And you can read all of 2 Corinthians 8. That's what he's saying. You promised it, now follow through. Now I'm going to send them. I'm going to send this brother. He is a very diligent brother. He's been proven diligent. But when he heard the confidence I have in you, I put my name on the line on your behalf that you'll follow through with your giving. You know what Paul's doing? He's putting the burden back on them. You need to be faithful in giving because I have told folks you are. And so then uh, faithfulness is the responsibility of the person who's faithful. And so Paul's putting the back saying, you know, I told them I have confidence in you. And it spurred, he is very diligently, he is planning a trip to come because we, have been, we know you're going to follow through. Same thing is communicated in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, beginning verse one, for as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Yet uh, have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that as I said, ye may be ready, lest haply if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, meaning if you're not ready when they come, we, that we say not ye, should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. He said, I have repeatedly boasted to others. Those Corinthians are generous. They are ready to give. So you be ready to give them. They show up because I have told them you can be trusted. Don't let us down. He's putting the burden of responsibility back on them to be involved in the work of the Lord sacrificially. So regarding the receiving of fellow servants, regarding rejoicing in the service of God and in the spiritual growth of others, rendering sacrificially in the work of the Lord. He had expressed confidence to the Galatians that they would reject error. I have confidence in you that you'll be none otherwise minded. And then finally, 
that they would have, the, the believers he wrote to would have personal, particular regard for the commandments he was giving them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 4, we read it a couple of times already. The Bible says, And we have confidence in the Lord touching you that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. Can I just stop for a moment? Could every person that's investing in you spiritually, whether a parent or your pastor or teacher, say this about you tonight? We have confidence in the Lord touching you that you both do and will do the things that we command you. How many of you know the context of 2 Thessalonians 3 and some of the things he's commanding them there? He says, there are some among you that are idle and busybodies and they work not at all. If any man would not work, neither should he eat. And if they are not obeying the instructions we're giving you, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. How many know those are hard commandments to follow through on? It is. It's not fun to have to do that. Paul said, we have confidence in the Lord touching you that you both do and will do the things which we command you. What are you saying? When a command is clear in the Bible, I know you're going to obey it. That's quite a statement. Quite a statement. Look at Philemon. uh, There's only one chapter, but verse 21. Philemon, verse 21. This is to an individual, not to a church. But Paul is expressing, he said, I know the kind of Christian you are, Philemon. You're not, a, you're not, a, you're not uh, feigned. You're not f- fraudulent. You're the real thing. Philippians 1, verse 20. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. I think these last ones are a confidence that even supersedes the confidence we see in the Corinthians. The Corinthians, it was, you know what? I have confidence that you're going to align with the principles of God's word. You have grown that confidence. I have confidence in all things. But Paul says something here. Philemon had even a greater confidence. Paul said to the Corinthians, I have confidence in you in all things. But he says, Philemon, I not only have confidence you'll do what I say, you'll do more. Shouldn't we be a Philemon? Shouldn't we be a Philemon that... Those who minister to us the things of God, not only is it expected they'll do their duty, meaning I'll obey the express commandments of God's word. I'll do that, but you can always count on me to do more. You can count on me to go above and beyond my duties and responsibilities. I don't know about you, and I hope the message can make some sense because we've been all over a lot of texts but here is, we, what we get is a, we get a magnifying glass on the interpersonal workings of Paul, who was a far better preacher, a far more authority than any pastor tonight, including this one. But look at the interactions. He says, you know what? First and foremost, there's a base confidence. I have a, a confidence in the Lord touching you. We have confidence that God is working in you. We have confidence in you in the Lord. Because you're in the Lord, we have confidence that this is going to go the way it needs to. God will bless. Then he would say to the Corinthians, there was a built confidence. There was a built confidence. They had responded through proving appropriately to the word of God. When it was given, they had repented of their wrongdoing and had adjusted to the word of God and gotten their attitude right toward Paul in so many ways. There was still work to be done. But he says, you know what? You've built a confidence, so I can say I have confidence in all things. You said you'll give. I know you'll do it. But then with Philemon, oh my. I don't know what we'd label it. A blessed confidence? <laughs> He said, I have confidence uh, in thy obedience. That's what he had said to the Thessalonians. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. Now Philemon was a dear and precious brother to Paul, and this tells us why. He was not a minimalist. What do I have to do? It's, you know what, when I know what I'll do, I'll do that, and I'll do more than that. And Paul could say to Philemon, I know. I have confidence. I was willing to write to you and tell you if Onesimus owes you anything, you put that on my account. And I know you'll do that and more because you love the Lord. Because you love the Lord. You know what? When people love the Lord, you can count on people doing what's right. If people don't love the Lord, you can't. (laughs) But I wonder tonight as we close, I said a lot of this goes my way. It gives me some instruction about how to think toward and how to serve people. But on the flip side of that, Where are you at in this? Are you at the base level? Well, someone can have confidence that at least the Lord's working in me and I'm in the Lord and 
when I hear the word of God, God's going to follow up and he'll confirm that what I'm hearing is true. Are you at the built level? I've proven when confronted the word of God, I'll change the way I think, submit to God's word. Are we at that blessed level? You know, I believe each one of these is a, is a demonstration of spiritual progress. Philemon, Paul said, I have confidence in thy obedience and that you'll do what I say, but even more. You know what I don't find really any of them doing? I don't find any of these people that Paul had confidence saying, you know, man won't tell me what to do. Huh? That's not biblical, is it? No, it's not biblical. God uses people to help people. How many of us know if we're going to work together, we have to rejoice in one another? We have to build confidence in one another as it relates to our walk with the Lord. I hope the message makes some sense tonight. Would you stand, please? 